the inaugural issue of the New Thinking Aloud magazine was just released on March 1st. You can download a free PDF copy from the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website. That's newthinkingaloud.org. You can even order a printed copy from mta-magazine.magcloud.com. Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Art and the Invisible World of Parapsychology. My guest is Shannon Taggart, who is an artist and author of the book Seance, the documents, historical and artistic photos of spiritualism. Shannon has been interviewed a previous time on New Thinking Aloud with Jeffrey Mishlove, and I'm going to link to that interview in the upper right corner of your screen. It's called A Photographer Among the Spirits. Shannon is joining me today in person as we're both located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Now I'll switch over to that video. Welcome, Shannon. It's such a joy to have you with me in person today on New Thinking Aloud. Yes, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. We both know that art and parapsychology is a really big topic, and you have spent the last 20 or so years photographing spiritualists. So we're going to be talking more about the last like maybe 100 years or so of modern and maybe contemporary art. Yes. Um, Through my project on spiritualism and photographing spiritualism, I never saw the two topics related, but the further I worked and um, the longer my project became, I realized how inextricably linked photography and spiritualism are. Um, They both were invented around the same time of the 18th century. There's locational synchronicities. Um, You know, photography freezes time and, you know, we can look at the past with it. Spiritualists um, try to speak with people who are no longer here. There's, um, my book kind of focuses on a lot of these interconnections between the two. But then I, you know, through the work, I realized, um, how parapsychology, the material culture of parapsychology, meaning the images and the devices and, um, the documentation that has happened through the practice of studying, uh, the mind and, and the, the invisible forces at work um, in parapsychology, that it created this very unique material culture that I see very much as its own visionary art. And I'm very interested in kind of like the material that has been discarded or thrown away by parapsychology, meaning that, you know, the images that were supposed to be used as proof, um, you know, and, and such. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that Art, the artist has a real um, ability to say something using these materials. Mm-hmm. How does one photograph or document through art the invisible world? Uh, so that was that's a topic that I was immediately confronted with, with when I tried to photograph mediumship and spiritualists. Um, I constantly was questioning how do you photograph photograph invisible things. How do you, how do you make a picture about uh, a visible body speaking to a, an invisible presence? And my technique that I developed uh, over time was using, uh, playing with time and playing with mistakes or things that I didn't intend uh, to give me a language um, to speak for the invisible. And at first when I was making exposures, you know, longer exposures. It was due out of necessity because I was in a lot of dark room situations. But I was having these uncanny synchronicities between the invisible experience and what was coming through in my camera. And both skeptics and believers were confused by my process. Like, you know, spiritualists, all of their art is an endeavor with evidence and trying to prove um 
that, you know, they're, they're seeking evidence of their proof of contact or, you know, there, there's a, a lot of focus on merging religion and science and kind of proving, um, that we can, we can have contact with the dead and contact with the other side. And then the skeptics are, would say this doesn't mean anything. It's just a blurry picture. But, uh, I was having these strong synchronicities with some of the pictures. And also I started to realize that one of the primary hallmarks of a paranormal experience is that time and space becomes irrelevant or different or changed. And I thought about how, you know, when we photograph marathon runners, we really abstract time to a very short window of time that our eyes never see. And so, you know, thinking about the space-time continuum and how we don't perceive, we perceive time in a straight line and it doesn't really work in the way that we perceive it, you know, this is getting very um, conceptual, but I, I, I really thought that the synchronicities I was getting were speaking to the, to some truth about the experience. Mm -hmm. And what was the truth you found? That these experiences have a complicated relationship with truth, just as photography does. And one of the biggest compliments I've received um, from my work, my, um, and the photographs published in my book was many mediums have contacted me and expressed thanks that I was able to speak to the reality of their experience in a way that is not done in words or not done in scientific study. And I started to think about, you know, the truth of the laboratory, the truth of the, the repeatable truth of the laboratory is very different than the truth of the artist or the truth of art. And that, um, there's an emotional truth in art that we acknowledge. And um, and so how this other type of truth could play into parapsychology and is there another truth in these artifacts that people um, have disregarded because of their lack of scientific truth? You spent many years in, well, you've traveled around the world, but you spent many years in Lilydale, New York, which is a spiritualist community, and your recognition of the similarities between photography and spiritualism is really echoed in that they grew up right down the street from each other uh, with Kodak being right down the street. <laughs> yes, yes. So when, um, when I began my project at Lilydale, I was a photographer. I was working as a professional photographer. I had studied photography in college and I had no idea that spiritualism had this very deep and profound connection with the medium of photography. Um, I'd like to say that spiritualism is the first religion to use the new medium of photography as, um, to make an iconography. You know, previously that had only been done in painting and also, there's uh, the first seances that ever happened happened in Rochester, New York, um, on at a place called Corinthian Hall that's no longer there, but it was located literally down the block from where Kodak's headquarters are. So there's a synchronicity that the exact same area and the exact same city introduced both spiritualism and photography to into popular culture. It brought it um, to the masses. Mm-hmm. Art has been helping to represent what's going on inside of an individual, the consciousness, uh, imagery that we can't always put into words. And I think that in more the modern era, era with photography, the tricky part is, is that sometimes people will look at these photographs and just think they look fake. Spirit photography, one, it's one of its most distinctive qualities is that it represents a thing in its opposite. It demonstrates what the mystic is saying is happening. And it also negates it by making it seem fake or fraudulent. Like a lot of the, the early spirit photographs, they look like double exposures. Some tables that are flying might look like they're held up by string. Um, there's an absurdity and a true, um, they almost seem like pranks or um, they, they come across that way. They come across in a very silly, unserious way, yet they, they reenact the reality that is being claimed that is actually happening. And this flickering is something that makes them so interesting. I think that's, you know, the art world is now um, re-looking at spiritualist art and photography. 
Um, and that's been represented in, in some of the most major museums and art shows uh, that have recently been happening. Um, I think it's about the novelty and also the um, the paradox. They're almost like uh, they make you meditate on the topic. Uh, and, you know, these have been discounted in, by um, parapsychologists or even by spiritualists. A lot of spiritualists are uncomfortable with the history of spirit photography because it it, it failed in convincing um, everybody that they, these were true images. It failed proving spirits through photographs. And um, but I see them as a very um, co- very complicated objects that um, you know speak to a lot of the issues at play. Um, we also don't understand the role that fraud and deception plays in parapsychology in mediumship. I mean, the whole history um, is wrought with, um, you know, people who are caught cheating or accused of cheating or um, put in situations where they were forced not to cheat. And, you, you know, it's, it, it speaks to the topic in a, a, a very interesting way. Yeah, it seems that we as humans are ever searching or many humans are ever searching for proof of the unseen world or the spiritual. Yes, yes. And these are, these topics are incredibly difficult to prove as para, as parapsychologists know. And, um, I think, you know, parapsychology is a very unique science because you're dealing with a phenomena that is deeply attached to human mo- emotions and meaning and, a subjective reality overlapping an objective reality. And so, you know, for example, one of my uh, heroes in the whole history of parapsychology is uh, the medium Eileen Garrett. Mm. And she was a medium herself, but she built a whole foundation to try and scientifically study her own mediumistic gifts, which she did not understand. And she didn't, she couldn't classify, she couldn't explain. But she also started a press, a literary press, to also look at it through literature. And she called for like a multidisciplinary approach to studying these things and not just with science, but with art, with literature, looking at the history of magic, mm-hmm. looking at neuroscience, looking at dream research, um, kind of using this multifaceted way to understand this very, um, this topic that's very deeply connected to the human experience and the most, the deepest questions that we have about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And yet there have been many parapsychological scientific studies that have shown that there definitely is uh, something going on here. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, J.B. Ryan proved, statistically proved ESP exists, but yet it's, not acknowledged or it's not part of, um, you know, when you talk to somebody about, uh, these topics, the average person would say, well, science would have proved it if, if it was true. There's something, there's still, um, something about it that is unacceptable. You and I had spoken and you mentioned how, uh, you've talked to scientists who have said, you know, the criteria for how they're judging parapsychology evidence is much higher than how they do in other studies. Yeah, I just spoke with Mona Sobani, who's a neuroscientist, who said that when she was exploring it, that she found just that, that the the methods used in the research studies of parapsychology are often even more rigorous than other fields of science. Right. So what do we do with that? And I think that the art that is related to these topics speaks to a mythical reality. And myth is a way of um, acknowledging truth in the world that is, it's often defined as um, fiction uh, that is true, you know, and um, myth outlasts science. Uh, myths, Myths last for thousands of years. Scientific theories only stay around for a few hundred. So, you know, we need to acknowledge this mythical reality that is in the art of parapsychology. And that's kind of the way I look at it. And we allow literature, you know, I I think pretty much materialists would agree that literature is one of the things humans use to grapple with the complexity of life. And we acknowledge that there is a truth in it. 
And so how do the, how does parapsychological material relate, um, to this idea? And, you know, when I look at the history of parapsychology, I think of all the iconic symbols that have come out of it, you know, like the Ouija board planchette, the bent spoon, the Zener cards even, they make the imagination go wild. Skeptics use them just as much to argue their points as um, the believers do. Uh, flying tables, you know, all of these things that also too, they make uh, the familiar strange. They confront us with ideas that reality might not be exactly as our senses perceive it. And, you know, in the 19th century, we also learned that to believe that our senses were the only way to get knowledge became unscientific, uh, you know, with the realization that there was radioactivity, that, um, you know, electricity, the way electricity worked, um, atomic theory, uh, the communication with the telephone or the radio or the telegraph. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioning that myth has survived for so long that I think it speaks to our inner selves and those, those archetypes of, of who we are. Um, but just to bring it back to your own photography, when you were with those mediums, one thing that struck me when reading your book is that you mentioned that some of the people who would be in a uh, a reading or a sitting or a seance, whatever the, the term is, that they would see, for example, maybe ectoplasm or something appear that was physical in the room. But yet when it was photographed, it would sometimes be portrayed differently. Like maybe some of the ones that had the ectoplasm in there with some images, they looked sort of cartoonish. But then the people in the room said that that doesn't seem to really represent what was happening in that moment in time in reality. Yeah, the photographic reality kind of negated it or or yeah. betrayed it. And that's so, interesting. Um, so that's why one of the first people to photograph ectoplasm, uh, Shrek Natsing, he actually turned, he stopped using photography and started just relying on um, human testimony. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it speaks to this thing, like this, this flickering, this true false thing. It's almost like, you know, a Zen Cohen or something. And he, when I say that we don't really understand how fraud works or even the, um, you know, the fraud seems to be prevalent. I mean, we don't understand how placebo works either. And that's like, that's one of the big mysteries of science is how the placebo works. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just riffing here, but like, just this, we really don't understand what deception and fraud, what the role actually plays. Carl Jung, um, argued that maybe the natural progression of any kind of period of psychic study would be, um, fraud or deception in order to get the attention away from it. So consensus reality could reign again, or kind of like a restart or a cleansing, um, aspect. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the placebo effect, and it's something that I've actually looked into and studied a fair amount. And it seems that belief plays a significant role in how a person responds to something, whether they expect that it will help them, or if they expect that it won't help them. It's usually consistent with what their expectations are and beliefs are around if it's an inert substance, like a some type of pill or some type of experience uh, as well. And it seems that what we believe uh, is really mm, can indicate how our life functions overall in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and in, in parapsychology, uh, there was even a placebo experiment trying to uh, bring about ghosts. It was called the Philip experiment in the seventies. And it was psychologists who got together and they say, we, we're going to invent this ghost and we're going to sit together. They made his whole life story. Um, uh, they would sit together in a circle and they would concentrate on invoking this fake ghost, this ghost that they invented, but they started to get very real phenomena. And it's documented in a book called Conjuring Philip. Wow. What do you make of that? Again, it gets to this, like, what makes this stuff so interesting? Yeah. 
we don't really understand the role of performance or acting or reenactment or um, <clears throat> fraud or deception. Like all of these things kind of blur in um, in these practices. And this is, you know, in shamanism, it, it, in our culture, these all of these connections between the true and the false are very pulled apart. But in shamanism, um, a successful shaman performs the act, you know, perform, like the successful act is the illusion. Um, and they didn't really, there wasn't a criteria of true and false as much, like as you see with shamanic healing, things like psychic surgery. Mm-hmm. Well, and meaning seems to also impact um, a person's experience as well and how they might either perceive or maybe even intend for something to occur. Right. We don't understand what's being activated deep inside ourselves when we, when we see an illusion. But you yourself have been in those spaces and you've been around a lot of mediums and spiritualists and you've seen ectoplasm <laughs> up close and personal. <laughs> so what is your takeaway from some of those experiences as to what is occurring? Yeah, it's a very complicated topic within spiritualism, the idea of ectoplasm, which is this physical substance that's supposed to merge the realms of, of life and death. It's, it's a substance that emanates in the seance room, largely from the bottom of the me- body of the medium and takes form, makes materializations, shows images. And for my book, I spent time with the most controversial medium who's working today, a man named Kai Mugi from Germany. And he's been studied by parapsychologists such as Stephen Brody. When I went to his seances, it was like seeing these vintage photographs jump to life right before my eyes. And I asked Kai, um, why do you do this? Why do you go around doing these ectoplasmic seances? And he says, the first reason is for healing, that um, there's a healing that comes about by trying, just simply by trying to merge the realms of life and death or, you know, the, the, this world and the next. And then he said, the second reason is to get people out of their own heads. And he said, I'm not trying to prove anything to anybody. I am just happy if at least they have one thought out of their normal thought pattern in our seances. And he's a really fascinating person to talk to. He documents his own seances. He has a blog online where you can see images and videos and all sorts of things that he's done of his work over the years. And he and I have talked about the strangeness and the just the absolute bizarre quality of some of these images. And he says that there's something in the bizarreness that is necessary because it it gets to or is able to open up something in the viewer that otherwise can't be accessed. Yeah. It seems that some people are looking for more evidence or physical proof, uh, and others are very happy with maybe their, the messages verbally they receive or maybe their own communication with, for example, a deceased loved one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my book, uh, it's all about spiritualism. And I'm, I have to be careful to say that there's a lot of disagreement within spiritualism about whether these practices are really relevant to us anymore. You know, there are mediums who believe we need to move on from these dark room seances and trying to produce ectoplasm and we need to focus on evolving consciousness. And then there's, and then they focus, you know, very much what you'll see in spiritualism is like what you see in the popular TV shows, like the Long Island Medium. It's like what we're doing here today. We're in a room that's lit and we're just having a conversation. That's, That's what a lot of modern mediumship actually is. But there are people within the movement who say, no, this has been with us since the very beginning. The very first mediumship was physical mediumship. And that there is something necessary about going into a dark room and turning your senses off and seeing what, um, and bringing forth evidence in that way. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and, and spiritualists are just by nature free thinkers, so that you have a lot of, um, and then you have, you know, all along the way, a lot of different opinions, um, and different ways of looking at it, even other than those two ways. I admire your neutrality that you bring to the topic. 
Yeah, that was really difficult <laughs> because there is, you know, um, so many people that I love and respect who are mediums work in very different ways. Yeah, it's true. Everybody's got a different style. And, and really, I think a lot of them have their own gifts. Yeah, and they have their own way of doing it. And also early on, um, as I was working with my project, people would write to me or call me and say, hey, can you refer me to a medium? Mm -hmm. And early on, I used to do it. And then sometimes it didn't work out. And then, mm. and then there'd be sometimes where somebody would have a session with a medium I did not think is, was particularly talented. And they would say, they would tell me this amazing stories. And so I started to think, I think maybe something, um, about human chemistry and also timing has something to do with why a reading works and why it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, I myself, I've had a lot of readings and some of them I'll be sitting with the medium and think, none of this is making sense. And then mm. I had one reading with, um, a medium who I was particularly impressed by. And so I booked a reading and then the information I got really didn't make sense to me, but it did make sense five years later. And that was really shocking. And I guess that's why a lot of mediums record the readings so that you have it for posterity. And I was really amazed. One of the, one of my favorite mediums in Lilydale is a woman named Gretchen Clark. And she was one of the first mediums who allowed me to photograph her. And when I went and photographed, uh, I sat in, she allowed me to sit on reading in on readings and I sat in on one of her readings and I saw her, she gave all this information about you know, a horse, a brother that didn't exist, you know, a, a property, this, that, tons of, tons of rich detail. And the people sat there and said, no, 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 no. And then she just closed her eyes and asked again. And she said, no, that's what I have for you. And she just left it at that. And they left kind of confused and she was, she was fine. And so then I followed up with the people and like two weeks later, they, they did all this family research and they found out every single thing she said was true. And it revealed this story about their families that they didn't even know. And so when I saw Gretchen, I, I said, Gretchen, you know, those people were here for the reading. Did you know that they, they went back and they found all this? And she's like, oh, that's really nice, but I don't need that. Like mm. she, she was so certain and she trusted her process and her practice so much that it didn't matter that I, I mean, she said it was nice, but it, it didn't really, she didn't need that for her to do her work. And I was really taken with that. It was, I thought that was very powerful. It was really interesting to me early on when, when, cause when I started, I didn't really understand much about any of these topics. Yeah. She was so certain of her own abilities that she didn't really need that validation. Yeah. And early on, one of the most surprising things to me was finding out that you could study mediumship. I was just, when I first started, I thought, oh, people are just born with this and then they just do it. Or, you know, they're just, le and it's, no, there are development things called development courses. And a very interesting thing I saw was I was at the Arthur Finley College, which is a learning center for spiritualists in England. And People will come all over, all over the world, not speak the same language and be able to connect on this way they worked with their consciousness. And when you see people who don't know each other, who are from completely different cultures, talk about a mechanism that's deep at work inside of themselves. It's hard not to acknowledge the authenticity. I don't know how you fake that. And they, they were able to help each other and teach each other despite the barriers of culture and language. I think what you say about timing and people connecting with the right person at the right time or them having their own experiences can really help with that, the doubting mind. I've, um, in my practices with intuition, one of the key tenets is that if you doubt it, you're going to block it. And so when people are questioning, I mean, by all means, we need to, you know, if people, if people are making claims that, that they are, uh, Faking, you know, that's something to acknowledge, but I think it seems that many people are quite genuine and authentic and that, and that if we can open our minds to the possibilities that actually, uh, I think there's even research. I got to talk to Bernard Beitman, who has been researching meaningful coincidences and synchronicities. And the more that we, um, believe in that and, and allow for that and talk about that, the more that those occurrences actually happen. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. Did you have any synchronicities when you when you've been looking into art and parapsychology? Yeah, I feel like the my whole um, process and my whole journey with this topic has been a series of synchronicities and, and events that led me um, to where I needed to go. And it's funny because my first days in Lilydale, the mediums would say, "Oh, you know, you're here for you know, you'll see, you'll find out, or you you know, you'll you'll see." And like I said early on, I had no idea. I didn't even understand how you could be a sane person and still be talking with dead people. I just didn't understand it because I had never, um, but I, I, I was meeting all these wonderful, lovely people who obviously to me, obvious to me that they were having, uh, they had an authentic practice and that they were called to the work. And that's, you know, one of the stereotypes that is out there, I think is that, um, anybody who's involved in mediumship or spiritualism is, a fraud who wants to get money off of people. And I was, I was immediately confronted with that as not being what was happening in Lilydale and not, not the reality of the people I was meeting. You know, I felt like it was spiritual work that they were called to and they weren't making crazy amounts of money at all. Um, and another, um, stereotype that I, that my work is about all in all of my interests, um, concerning spiritualism and parapsychology and art is that there's a stereotype that this is um, for dumb people or it's anti-intellectual or, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, gullible or something, but digging into the history, uh, the most amazing minds of the 19th and 20th century were involved with these topics. It's deeply tied to almost every innovation of the late 19th century. Um, you know, Madame Curie sat in seances and investigated them, her and her husband, Pierre, and she won the Nobel Prize. There was a series of Nobel Prize winners you can, you can find in, um, mathematicians, you know, Thomas Edison, Abraham Lincoln and his wife, um, held seances. Um, so, you know, and these details were written out of many of the histories that I studied from. And, you know, so I'm, really interested in how spiritualism and mediumship and ESP or psychokinetic energy relates to innovation and um, new things that we bring into the world. It seems to me to be everywhere. And that, in fact, some of the most important intellectuals find that rational thought only takes them so far and that they are absolutely confronted with these topics and need to explore them. Several innovations and inventions have occurred with people getting insights through dreams. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the whole dream thing is fascinating also. And the, the connection to the, the, the dream state or that, that level of consciousness and how that plays into all of these topics. How does art have the ability to tell the truth that science cannot? Art speaks to the emotional truth that is at work, and it also helps tell the story of these topics and how um, how they how they relate to meaning and they connect with meaning. They bring in images, right? Yes, yes, and the, the images help tell the story. They help tell the truth of the ideas. They help tell the truth of the experience, and um, they help they help spread the ideas and the interest and um, they create conversation. They draw people in, in a way that scientific study does not. One of my favorite things about parapsychology is there's history of colorful characters and all the really quirky devices, like the cabinets that they build for mediums, like Houdini's cabinet that he put the medium Marjorie in to test her, or like um, the artist Susan McWilliam, in um, Ireland, she she has a breadth and depth of work all about the laboratory as kind of similar to the artist's studio and the, the blindfolds that are used or the fingertip perception um, studies or, you know, the boxes and weights and chains that are put around medium's feet. Um, you know, when you see these devices at work, uh, it, it's, it you see that um, parapsychology is... Um, you know, really, there's an absurdity to these devices. And it's almost like 
related to the absurdity of the question, can we really know these things? Um, and there's like a playful theatrical element to parapsychology that you can find understanding in by looking at the material culture. Well, and some of those devices do look sort of strange out of context, but when you really explore yeah. what they were used for and how they aided a process that, you know, maybe they aren't, you know, that's so strange after all, just like beauty's in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um I think that the uh image factory of parapsychology has inspired a lot of my favorite artists like Tony Orsler and the artist Brian Catling, um, who just, he just passed, but um, he was in England. And Tony Orsler is a, a media artist here in the United States. And he has a huge collection of parapsychology material. And his art is very much inspired by all of this, um, the, the whole image factory of how, how we study these things and what they say about perception and, and human experience and entertainment and illusion. And, um, I feel that, um, artists really are tuned in to aspects of parapsychology that have kind of been lost or forgotten or overlooked. Mm -hmm. And artists also can create a positive attention towards these topics, which is very much needed. I understand why parapsychology hasn't fully embraced its artistic heritage or it's not really integrated because art is very interpretive and subjective and parapsychology has had to struggle um, to be taken seriously and to be taken seriously had to be very precise and very objective and almost, you know, cleanse out anything that seems entertaining or subjective or silly or you know it has this demand to be even you know even more buttoned up than regular science because it's making such broad claims mm -hmm. while there are those images that are from experiments shall we say or experiences that people have had through parapsychology, you've also discovered that there are many artists who maybe wouldn't consider themselves to be mediums or even be in the field of parapsychology who are getting major exhibitions and who are, who have been active really throughout, um, art history who are now getting more attention. There's exciting attention happening for uh, mediumistic art and visionary art related um, to spiritualism and, you know, related to the study of parapsychology. Uh, for example, the Swedish artist Hilma of Klint is uh, now being acknowledged as a pioneer of abstract painting. And she was unknown in her life and was a medium who said that spirits were physically guiding her hand and then later she worked in a different way where they were using her consciousness and there was a recently uh, exhibition of her work at the Guggenheim Museum in 2019 that was the best uh, selling catalog and the most attended exhibition the museum has ever had uh, last year at the Venice Biennale Milk of Dreams exhibition which is the Venice Biennale is one of the biggest art uh, events in the world. There was a pavilion of seance photography. And um, recently here in Minneapolis, there was the Supernatural America exhibition, which dealt with all sorts of art about UFO, about mediumship, about magic. And so th there is like a newfound openness and interest in these topics and um especially art that was made through um with the help of spirits or um that the practitioners said was made with the help of spirits and you know people are more open or fascinated or interested in in these um this form of art yeah throughout history and when people experience major loss, transition, grief, or there's a lot of discomfort going on in society and culture, people can turn toward looking to the spiritual realm. And it seems that that was sort of what was happening around the turn of the century, going into the 20th century. And also, 
with our recent pandemic, do you think that that was also somehow um, impacting this occurring? Yes, I think our our culture is definitely in a time of transition, and um, there's a lot of anxiety, and also there's a lot of you know we're questioning gender roles, we're questioning what is truth in science, um, how do we know the truth in science, how do how do you control a story, or whoever gets to control the story, controls the narrative, or like people battling with different narratives and different ways of seeing reality, different ways of knowing the truth. All of these things are like brewing up really big in her culture. And so um, in times of transition, you know, um, the book, George P. Hansen's book, The Trickster and the Paranormal, notes that in times of transition, these topics kind of reemerge and reappear. And also, we're questioning histories and histories that have been written. Part of the reason that um, Hilma Off Clint and other artists like her that predate Kandinsky, such as Georgiana Houghton, part of that reason is because people are re-looking at women's histories and the role that women played in culture. And spiritualism itself played a huge role in women getting the right to vote. It's the reason that, you know, women were accepted as public speakers in America and these histories are just recently being acknowledged. Um, there's a book called Radical Spirits about feminism and spiritualism, and the author, Anne Brody, said that some of her colleagues in academia had questioned why she would want to taint the topic of women's rights with um, mediumship and spiritualism. And um, she said she had to because it's historically accurate. What is the connection between the feminist movement and the suffragette and spiritualism? When spiritualism started, it's actually um, erupted in an area of upstate New York, uh, which became known as the Burned Over District, uh, which is an area where Mormonism also started, spiritualism started, Seventh-day Adventism, but it's also where the women's rights movement started. It's a hotbed of radical activity. And so the the women's rights movement was kind of up and coming right around the time that spiritualism was. And the it's very interesting because the first public speakers were trans speakers. At that time, it, women were not allowed or it was dangerous for women to speak in public. And um, the first time people may have seen women speaking in public was at is these entranced, is entranced mediums. And the um, spiritualists would allow women to speak on their platforms, you know, as themselves. Yeah. You know, Susan B. Anthony used to speak at Lilydale. You know, she would she would go. I mean, it was very much a tool. Spiritualism became a cultural force that aligned with the women's rights movement and helped women achieve equality. Spiritualism was a radical religion because it placed men and women as equals. Yeah. So they were very valued for their skills and the men allowed them to be on the platforms with them. Yeah. So it's, so it's interesting that, uh, women were able to use this idea of speaking as a spirit and not speaking as themselves in order to take that power and then keep that power. It was as if they used the spirit world to flip the script and, um, Again, you're seeing spiritualism uh, relate to innovation. Mm-hmm. And um, and spiritualism is also related to um, abolitionism, uh, holistic medicine, uh, child's rights, um, marriage rights. It played a role in uh, progressive politics in a very huge way. Spirits literally gave women... Their voice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. Are there any other artists in the last hundred years who you want to highlight? The new project that I've been working on directly relates to this, yeah. this topic. Um, I have recently, um, I've been working with the sociologist Jim McLennan, and he, he for a number of years studied a group known as the SORAC group which is the Society for Research on Rapport and Telekinesis, which was started by um, the famous American poet John G. Neihart. And um, it, was a, it was a seance group or a parapsychology group. They were advised by J.B. Rhine, and 
they were seeking to scientifically prove uh, psychokinetic phenomena. But in the process, they created thousands of images. Um, uh, they created films, audio, uh, a massive, massive, massive media archive that what they used as testimony to their experience. They also had um, a lot of spirit writing and um, I, they took very precise notes. So with Jim, I've worked to save the archive of Tom and Elaine Richards, who were original members and the primary documentarians of the group. And so even though this these materials were not acknowledged as art, um, at the time, uh, I see them as prime examples of wonderful visionary art that was made as a byproduct of parapsychological study. Mm. And so I'm working on a book of this material and I'm so excited and I cannot wait until, um, we get it out and, and share it because it's, it really speaks to almost everything we've touched on today in this interview in a very profound way. And a lot of it's never been seen before. And a lot of it was, you know, especially the films were, you know, completely maligned while the group was working. But Jim uh, came to the realization that, you know, he started out as a sociologist of uh, science and studying parapsychology, and he switched to become a sociologist of religion because he realized it was more helpful to study the belief and um, the practices of what was going on rather than um, trying to prove it. He felt like sociology, a sociological study, was a really valid way of understanding these topics. And uh, he started focusing on also the folklore of the group. And so um, he entered his study, not, not trying to prove either way, but as an observer. And although he was interested in the proof, he also like was interested in how it affected the people. Did he find that it was just belief? Did he find that there was uh, validity? He thought, oh, I'm going to go down there and study and prove that this is all just a big fraud. And he ended up finding out that it was much more complicated than that and that many parapsychologists went there um, with the goal of showing that it was it was fraud, but then coming away with they weren't sure what was happening there. It's one of the most exotic cases in the history of parapsychology, and many um, well-known parapsychologists were involved with the group or interested in it or or studied it. And Many didn't even publish on it because it was unclear what was actually happening. Mm. Um, it, it was a very, there was a lot of, you know, the films that they made look like obvious staged, hoaxed, um, stop motion, uh, stop motion films. But when you try to get down to the nitty gritty of how they actually did it, um, I had one parapsychologist tell me, uh, it's just easier to believe that the spirits did it. Once you go down the rabbit hole with all the ways you make it happen under the constraints. So, um, so the films kind of say, uh, seem to be saying something else. They seem to be asking us to contemplate the topic. Mm. And if you look at them that way, they're really fascinating pieces of history. Well, you said a mouthful there in relationship to this topic and art, because that's a lot of what art does for us. And I'm just going to link in the upper right corner here to that interview with Jim McLennan on the SORAT group. For me, I think the SORAT material is calling us to contemplation and maybe um, some of this confusion, um, maybe that's part of the point. Uh, In the entity letters, Jim McLennan makes the analogy between the SORAT films and other religious devices that mix shock and humor, such as like a Zen Cohen, and how, you know, they're they're calling us to contemplate the mystery. They're calling us into the mystery. They're making us confront the mystery without getting an answer. And I love thinking of the material that Sora produced as having that dual purpose. And I think there's a lot there um, to unpack. And the Sorak group had always hoped that 
their efforts would be acknowledged by science or would help um, the history of parapsychology. They started with, they literally started with the premise that they were trying to bring truth from non-physical reality into our world so that it could help. You know, they, they, they talked about um, psychokinetic force as being as maybe as important to humankind as the invention of the wheel or bringing fire. They really felt it was that powerful and that, and that important. And they were really trying to um, bring some of that knowledge into the world. And um, the story of the group, you know, doesn't end well because they were maligned by many of the people who studied them. Yeah. But um, it's my hope that their materials, once they live on and are put forth into the world, that um, maybe there will be insights found and that um, maybe part of this uh, archive that we've saved will help with that. Well, that's quite a tease. Are there any other images or imagery that you're willing to share from the Sorat group? Yeah, I'd love to share a few of the images because I think the material is just so exciting. And as I'm going uh, with the research, I occasionally share some images on my Instagram or on my Twitter also have a website and mailing list um, as well, where I'll be sharing updates and um, we're hoping the book will be out in 2024. Sometimes people will take their own photographs, right? Smartphones are ubiquitous and people will capture an orb or there'll be some anomaly in their photograph. What do you make of those? Oh, um, I love all the experimentation that's going on right now with uh all types of devices and iPhones, certainly video cameras, um, different apps. Uh, I, it's part of my research actually to pay attention to new forms of spirit photography that are emerging. And there's many mediums at work who are documenting themselves with their own cameras, who are pursuing orb photography, which I guess you could say orb photography is the spirit photography of today. And they're not really as concerned with what is making the orb, whether, although there are claims that it's not dust or water or any kind of a glitch with a camera, you know, that can be debated, but they're, they're focused on how you can interact with an orb. You know, orb practitioners call the orbs in, make the room fill with orbs, make them move around in patterns, see if they can direct them with their minds and, a lot of the orb photography is really compelling and fascinating, actually. And it's also very playful and, you know, orbs can be really beautiful, too. So I, I, I'm very interested in how people are experimenting. And I get really inspired by amateur um, photographers who are experimenting with these ideas and these topics. It's one of the most fun parts of my research. Because you are a photographer and an expert in this area, do you feel that you have the ability to tell when a photograph is either, quote, fake or not? I can pretty easily discern blatant manipulation, like such that happens in Photoshop or with double exposure. Um, but for the most part, that's one of the mysteries of photography is when you see it, you're not really sure how it was made. It's kind of completely abstracted from reality. It's a representation of reality. And um, that's part of what I love about photography. I also, although I didn't understand it early on, I, I realized that I've always been interested in the telepathic aspects of photography and how a photographer's consciousness is embedded in their photographs. You know, we talk a lot about it. It's often called the photographer's eye, mm -hmm. but you know, you can, you can see, you can tell by great, when it's a great photographer, you can distinctively uh, tell it's their image. And how do we do that? You know, I mean, we're often using the same types of cameras. There's not really that much difference from um, a lot of the professional cameras, but there is a difference in the person utilizing it. So this gets, get, this gets even gets into ideas about, you know, consciousness and the observer and, and how does the observer um, change reality? And that, so that's like very much a parapsychological topic, but I also see it as an aspect of what makes photography so mysterious and so magical.
Yeah, how our consciousness can interact with the camera. Yeah, yeah. I'm really, you know, it, I've been on photo shoots with other photographers and we're all standing elbow to elbow with similar cameras, yet all of our pictures are so distinctively different. Mm. And I find that really fascinating. And um, the first photographer that I ever um, encountered, uh, like, the first photographer that I encountered as an art photographer was Deanna Arbus. I saw her photographs when I was in photography class in high school. And I realized that I was somehow seeing into her mind and that she was showing me things that I wouldn't be able to see, um, even if I was there with her. And so that I deeply, um, I deeply understood that when I saw her images and that's what made me interested in photography. And I think that absolutely relates to what I'm still interested in, in photography. Art can represent our consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. And how, um, yeah, how we can talk about psychological space, you know, how we can, um, you know, space that we know that exists, but you not you don't necessarily see, and I think um, that's part of what photography addresses. Even though it's taking pictures of physical reality, it speaks to um, unseen realms. How do you think art or the creative process can help someone tap into their own consciousness, intuition, or spirituality? Well, one of the things I was very struck with is when I sat in on mediumship development classes is how freeing they were uh, for my creative self, meaning that they teach you to take your mind, take your imagination seriously, to break down certain barriers, to allow playfulness, to allow um, silliness, uh, to allow play to allow experimentation. These, these um, practices, I think, relate deeply to creativity and art, but also to psychic ability. Mm-hmm. We're in St. Paul, Minnesota, and there's a very well-known avenue called Summit Avenue full of mansions, and several of them have been known to have a history of be considered being haunted. I think some of those who might be listening may be wondering if you've ever attempted to capture a spirit on film, or have you ever felt you've captured a spirit on film? I've never been to the houses in some, on Summit Avenue, but I do find the idea of haunted spaces really fascinating. And in the book, there's actually there's a two photographs um, in my book that run next to each other, and they're from haunted hallways. Uh, or, or hallways where I was told there was spirit activity and, um, I took, um, long exposures and I got really interesting pictures and, uh, the mediums that I showed the pictures to, one of them said, Oh, well, this really haunting and ghosts and that relates to the Akashic record, which is this idea that everything that's ever been done or every emotion, every feeling, every movement, everything is been is recorded on the etheric plane, and that somehow we can tap into it, and that um, haunted haunted spaces kind of speak to this idea. And um, so I tried to make a picture of of these spaces with this idea in mind. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on those who attempt to capture? spirit activity or to capture spirits through art or photographs? I've talked with a lot of people who experiment with haunted spaces, uh, bringing cameras in. And a lot of times part of the folklore is that when you really see the manifestation, the camera freezes, it won't work. Um, I met a woman who's a photographer. She's a professional photographer. And she said she was investigate. She was on an investigation. She absolutely saw an entity and tried to photograph it and her camera just wouldn't take the picture. And I hear this story over and over again. Anecdotally, you see it in the literature. Um, you know, the pictures that do happen that people claim are spirits, there's always this way of, yeah, but it could be just be this or yeah, but it could just be that. And this, again, this flickering of it might not be true. 
I, I, I don't know if that's, um, you know, a way that we're, that's the only way we're supposed to have it is if there's some doubt. I don't know, but anytime there's ever been like absolutely a, a full manifestation, people have told me the cameras won't work. What do you make of that? I don't know. Cause I, I, I have experienced my gear acting strangely at certain times where I really couldn't explain why. And I, I really needed it to work. I mean, I'm not, I, I never saw like a full manifestation. I was trying to photograph, like it wasn't in that type of situation. So, um, I don't know. It's just part of the folklore. It's part of the story. It's part of, it relates to all of these complications and, um, it's just part of the mystery. Yeah. Or maybe we're to use all of our senses or other senses. Just like art, it's up to everybody's own interpretation. Yes. <laughs> yes. And that's, that's what I love about some of my, um, spookier, more compelling, compelling pictures. I leave it open to the viewer to judge what is happening. I'm not trying to prove anything in my pictures, in the pictures that are in the book. I really love that you have to have the subjective interpretation of the viewer. Mm. And that's um, really how I, I try to leave them open-ended. Yeah, beautiful. Well, this has been such a joy. Is there anything else you want to share about art in the invisible world of parapsychology? I think I got to a lot of places uh, today, and I thank you for this interview. I am such a huge super fan of this show and of you and of Jeff. So um, it's really a gift to be here, and um, I hope to come back and talk more sometime. We would love to have you come back and talk more, and we are great fans of yours as well. Shannon Taggarty, thank you so much for meeting with me here together in person in St. Paul and for being with me today. Thank you. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. 